nations where unarmed forces strike the edge of ecology. Uh, for a while, yes, at least, 
and I'll explain, <coughs> explain why in this talk. Um, right. Okay, so these are the things I'm going to talk about tonight, which you'll have seen in the Changing, the Changing Times website. Uh, the need to understand where we are in the human story in this critical century, why it's such a critical century, the 21st century. Um, Rudolf Stein has been a big influence in my life. I've had basically three influences in my life. Um, where I grew up, in Chester, very ancient Roman city. That's where I grew up until 18. I went to Manchester, became a man, studied history at Manchester University. And then I went to Japan after I graduated. And in Japan, I taught English for seven years in Tokyo and Osaka. And that was, you know, obviously deep shock, deep immersion, cultural learning of all kinds. Um, so that was the second real major formative influence in my life, I think. And I was lucky also to meet a woman there who I spend the rest of my life with, and still I'm doing so. And uh, then the third thing was, when I came back to this country in 1981, more or less immediately came into contact with the, with the ideas of Rudolf Steiner, who was, you know, died in 1925, a long time ago. But I found to my great interest that this man, what he said, answered a lot of the questions which had arisen in me when I was in Japan. East-West questions, spiritual religious questions, questions about the relationship between cultures, um, how England and Japan can possibly relate, how to bridge this seeming gap. So, science helped me a lot to understand things, and particularly helped in connection with current events in relation to, for example, the First World War, which is going on during his lifetime. And I had long felt, before I knew Rudolf Steiner, who I only encountered when I was 29, that the First World War was like the crucible of the century which everybody in this room was born into. Um, have you ever wondered you know, why we were born into the 20th, 20th century? What is it with the 20th century, with these two world wars and this Cold War? And all the other things that happened. But I have long felt that the First World War was like a crucible for much that happened in the 20th century. And I, um, I was very interested to find out from the age of 12 what that conflict was all about. So, how Rudolf saw the modern age as the etheric presence of Christ and the physical incarnation of Arima. Um, if you're not familiar with the work of Rudolf Steiner at all, um, can I just take a brief show of hands? Is there anybody here who feels they're really not familiar at all? Please, it does help me to know that. Thank you very much. Um, the name Arima Rudolf Steiner chose uh, is a, it's a name of a Persian spirit, the Persian spirit of untruth. Or deception. Um, and in our world, here the ancient spirit of darkness lies. And the, um, the name which we are more familiar with, of course, in the West is Satan. Satan and Lucifer being two different beings. I'll come to that later on. So, how does science of the modern age as that of the etheric presence of Christ, the etheric presence of Christ? Christ in the invisible realm, in the realm of the angels. The spirit, that part of the spiritual world which as it were is closest to our own, but it's not physical. And the 
Contrast to that, the physical incarnation of Aaron. I'll come to this later. Thirdly, the roots of the current Ukraine situation, the Anglo-Russian antagonism, and what he called the ghosts of Rome. How the Roman Empire is still very much living with us in our culture today in various ways. The relationships between US, UK, EU, Russia and China. Then transhumanism, AI, the plans for what uh, I call the threefold abolition of the human being. The abolition of the human spirit, the abolition of the human soul, and now in the 21st century, the abolition of the human body. And people all know what I'm talking about there. We'll get to that later. And then the equally threefold cultural, political, economic solution to the world crisis, which could offer a positive way out of the current situation that we're in. So before I go any further, I must not forget my water. So, understanding where we are in the human story. Now, this is a lot, so I'm being quite demanding with you today, but um, I hope it will make sense. We need to try and grasp this in order to make sense of the kind of specific, more contemporary um, issues that we're going to be referring to later. So, first of all, when are we in 2022? We think 2022, 2022, years after after Christ, after the birth of Christ. So, and these numbers just go on and on and on. That's our normal understanding of our chronology, is it not? And then before Christ, they went back and back and back and back. And the numbers just continue. It's a bit like the numbers that just continue when we talk about in the beginning of the, uh, how long the dinosaurs lived or, or back to the Big Bang and so on. But actually, as we'll see, there are certain qualitative rhythmical elements to these various dates and numbers. So if we take this one year we're living in now, we see that it, it exists at the intersection of all kinds of rhythms and cycles within history, which are really quite complicated, like in a, in a symphonic piece of music almost. So first of all, now these first two, I can't, I'm not going to talk about these tonight. I'm only going to point them to you and invite you to look into this yourself. That this year mirrors, mirrors 2022 BC. So, if you just take as a, if you, if this idea is new to you, that for example the Christ event 2000 years ago is the center of human evolution, of human history on this planet. If you don't agree with that, or you, you, you think you're not comfortable with that in some way, I can only invite you, just for the purposes of this evening, just, just take that as a kind of uh, assumption or a hypothesis, if you will, then. And then just dwell on it. And in view of what I'm going to present you tonight, see if that then makes sense to you in terms of how you experience current events in history. So, where we are now mirrors approximately 2000 BC. Now, as far as I'm aware, for example, no uh, scholars, biblical scholars, are of the opinion that Abraham lived much earlier than 2000 BC. There are all kinds of dates proposed for him, somewhere between 1500 and 2000 BC. But 
the time that we are in the moment is approximately corresponding to that time at the beginning of the story of Abraham. Um, then we see that 2022 correlates to the year 138 BC. Now, why should that happen? Because, as I said before, um, history, in a way, is a kind of musical structure. And we'll see that there are seven periods. There have been seven great periods of history since the Great Flood. And these seven periods are like the seven intervals in, um, in the octave. Of course, in the octave there are eight notes, but the first note and the eighth note are the same, more or less. So it's, the key is the seven steps to the octave. And in each of these seven phases of history, we can see that they have these seven periods. And that there are correlations between these seven periods. Seven periods of growth or development, if you will, in each of these historical periods. So where we are at now, um, 609 years into our present cultural age, which I'll explain to you later, is the fifth age known to, I'm sure many of you, uh, the age of Pisces. And then before that was the age of Aries. We are 609 years into the age of Pisces today, 2022. Now, 609 years into the previous age, the fourth age, that was the age of Aries. That was the year 138 BC. So I would just invite you to look into that for yourself. What was going on in the year 138 BC? And not only in the West, of course, but also in China. What's going on in China today? It doesn't mean necessarily only right, of course, in this year. Just look around the 130s, for example, 130s BC. Then in the 2020s, we are about to enter the third phase, 2029, of the fifth cultural age. That's the one we're in now. It started in 1413 and will end in 3573. I'll explain that again in a minute. 2022 is two years into the new air phase, which started in 2020, so just two years ago, of the Jupiter-Saturn impulse that began in 1603. 2022 is 122 years after the reopening of the doors of natural clairvoyant perception, which happened in 1900. Now that's a really significant thing. Uh, again, I'll mention that later. 2022 is 43 years into the second century, 1979, of the deepening Michael age, the Archangel Michael. So the Michael age began in 1879, and the second century of that was 1979. So the impulses that the Archangel Michael stands for are deepening now in this second century. That's part of the background of the age in which we live. 2022 is the 22nd year of the 21st Christian century. So we're in this 21st century. What does that mean to be 21? It's when you're adults traditionally, it's when your adulthood begins. When you take responsibility for your life as an individual. But now humanity is taking responsibility for our life on this planet. Taking responsibility for this planet. 2022 is the 22nd year of the third Christian millennium. 
And this movement from the second millennium to the third millennium, and you'll hear me refer to this a lot, the movement from number two to number three, this is a real key for understanding the time in which we live. The time of dualism to the time of threefoldness or triadism or trinity. In 2022, we approached the 2000th anniversary in the years 2030 to 2033 of the three years of Christ, from the baptism in Jordan to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So we're coming up to that in 2030. And you'll notice that the global elite are all focused on what particular year? 2030. Agenda 2030 is what everybody is talking about. But not for this reason. Not to celebrate this reason. 2022 is 33 years after 1989. 66 years after 1956. And 99 years after 1923. And this 33 year cycle or 33 year rhythm is a, uh, a historical um, factor which Rudolf Steiner uh, brought forward in 1917. It's based on the etheric cycle of the life of Jesus Christ. 2022 is almost three times 33 years after the beginning of the human vision of Christ in the etheric, in the angelic realm, which starts, according to Steiner, in 1933. So in 1933, people would begin to have visions of Christ in the angelic realm. Yeah. In 2022, now I'm looking at one of the darker side, in 2022 we have been experiencing the incarnation of Aramon since 2000. And this is my view, this is not what Steiner said, I'll, I'll share with you later on what he said about the incarnation of Aramon. Um, but I've given a lot of thought to this over the years. And it seems to me that this process began in the year 2000. I'll explain why later. 2022 is seven or eight years before the probable emergence of the human vehicle of Aaron slash Satan in 2029-2030. And again, I would invite you to just think back over the well, over your lifetimes actually, but particularly since the 1970s, early 1970s, and particularly again since 9-11 and the beginning of this century. And think of how things have accelerated by an incredible amount since that time. It's as if there is somehow a tremendous foot on some enormous accelerator going on in our world today. And I would submit that what that is, is basically the atmosphere which is accompanying the approaching incarnation of the being we call traditionally in the West Satan, and to which we must die gave the name Arima. 2022 is the penultimate year of the window of Sorat's third attack on humanity. Now many of you may not be familiar with Sorat. This is the name of the being who was referred to in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, the being of the number 666. And Sorat is the, uh, the, the, the letters of that name correlate to those numbers. You know that in Hebrew, the 
the word examples, but they are uh, only um, uh, consonants, S, R, T, H. Surat, 666. Now this particular being, Steiner pointed out, attacks humanity every 666 years. I'll explain that later too. The last, um, we're living in a window, so to speak, of this attack which began in the early 70s and which will end next year. And the centre of that window was 1998. Alright, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, so I'll, I'll go through it fairly quickly. Just to explain, first we're going from the, uh, the zodiac level, so to speak. Then we'll come to the planetary level. The spring point moves through a long degree of the zodiac every 72 years. But the spring point is that point where the day and the night are of equal length. And um, when you look, when the sun rises on that day, um, behind the sun is a sign of the zodiac. And so we can see that at the spring point there is a particular sign of the zodiac there, and a particular degree of the sign of the zodiac. Now in the equal zodiac, um, every sign has 30 degrees. So it's Babylonian times. And 30 times 72 is 2160. And that's where we get this number, 2160 years is the length of time of a cultural age. The age of Aries, the age of Aquarius, the age of Pisces and so on. And so we can see from observation, from calculation, that the spring point entered the sign of Aries in 1946 BC. And it entered the sign of Pisces in 215 AC after Christ. But the cultural ages of Aries and Pisces began in 747 BC and 1413 AC, respectively. So, how so? How is that possible? Let's look at that. Here's a quote from a book by Hugo Winkler, who was a specialist in Babylonian culture, written in 1902. Quote, the calendar reform which determined the entrance into Aries is attested to historically. It was carried out by King Nabonassar of Babylon. The age of Aries is reckoned from the year 747 BC, the beginning of his reign. And this date was utilized by the entire astronomy and chronology of antiquity. And then Claudius Ptolemy, who uh, the Alexandrian mathematician and astronomer um, on whom our, particularly our tropical astrology in the West is based, wrote in his book Almagest, quote, from this date, namely 747, we possess the ancient observations continued practically to the present day. So he wrote that in about 150 after Christ. So the astronomical age varies began in 1946 BC, but the cultural age varies began in 747 BC. If you want to go into this in more detail, then have a look at um, this book here, Metaphysical Astrology, Volume 1 by Robert Powell. 
So the question is, what accounts for the 1199 year gap or delay in the astronomical and the cultural ages? This might seem a bit abstruse, but it really is important for us to grasp where we are in, in history. Well, this, I submit, is what explains the 1200 year or 1199 year gap, the so-called Venus pentagram or Venus pentagon. And you probably know that every eight years, Venus um, makes five beautiful conjunctions with the Sun. And the movements of Venus are extremely regular and harmonious, which is why Venus has been used by many cultures uh, for, including, for example, the Aztecs, for um, astronomical and astrological research and observations. So we see, for example, here, if you start here, June 1988. So if we are looking for the Earth, and we look to Venus, and then we look to the Sun, so Venus and the Sun are more or less in the same position, aligned with each other, and then behind them is the sign, is the sign of Gemini. And then, a couple of years later, the two, the, um, we see Venus with the sign in Capricorn, behind them, January 1990, and then September 1991, Leo, and April 1903 Aries and November 1904 Scorpio. So this invisible pattern emerges, which is a, a very beautiful geometric uh, pentagram. That's simply the same thing uh, in, a, in a computer display. So this, um, these, the point is that these positions, after the fifth position, when you come back to the sixth position, it's slightly further along on the zodiacal periphery, you see. That means that over 1199 years, 1200 years, these five points of meeting will all rotate right, right around the zodiac. And then they will come back to where approximately where they were 1199 years earlier. So this is called the rotation of the Venus pentagram. And I would submit that this is what is like the cosmic uh, transformer, if you will, that steps down a new cosmic impulse from the zodiacal level down to the level of human history and culture. But we can only convince ourselves of that when we observe history itself. So these are the cultural ages, not the astronomical ages. I hope I've made that clear. The cultural ages, and you see there, that date 747 again, the age of Aries. This, this is Cancer, Gemini, Taurus, Aries, Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn. And these are the seven cultural ages since approximately the time of the Flood, which would have been about 2,000 years before this. The Indian Epoch, the Persian Epoch, the Middle Eastern Epoch, the Mediterranean Epoch, the North European Epoch, East European Epoch, and the American Epoch, by which is meant the whole continent of America, not the United States. And please notice that, as I said before, this musical relationship between, as in music, you have a kind of musical relationship between the three notes of the lower tetrachord, do, re, mi, and then the three notes of the upper. So, la, ti. 
There's a relationship between those around the center point of FARC in the middle. So FARC in the middle is this fourth epoch, the Mediterranean epoch, the age of Aries, from 747 BC to 1413. That's the middle point. Then around this middle point, you see a certain relationship between the Middle Eastern third epoch, Taurus, that's Egypt, Babylon, Chaldea, and Assyria, um, Sumer, and so on. And our present epoch, which began in the 15th century. So in our present time, many aspects of the age of Taurus are actually resurrected in various forms, various cultural forms. And so it will be in the next epoch, the sixth epoch, the age of Aquarius, many aspects of the second epoch will, will resurrect, so to speak. Um, so here we see the cultural ages. And the important point to grasp here is that in each of the cultural ages, a different part of the human being is developed. So we see that, sorry, we see books, we see, we see that um, in the age of Taurus in the Middle East, the key concern was the developing of human faculties of feeling. And morality and values were seen in that time in particular in relation to beauty. Beauty and otherliness. That's very much the case in Japan in the old Shinto culture, which is again goes back way before the, um, uh, the four people. The values of that which is clean and that which is unclean, that which is beautiful and that which is dirty or ugly. And at that time, in the third epoch, what we call politics today didn't exist. Society was governed, so to speak, and determined by the priesthood by the kings, the pharaohs, who were in fact demigods, and the priests who were around them, and facilitated the impulses from the spiritual world through these demigods to the people. There was no politics then. There was no separate world of economy, no separate world of politics. Everything was suffused by the will of the gods, by religion. Then in the age of Aries, we see that it now in this Time, 1414-13 after Christ, in the Mediterranean culture, the human being really begins to think for himself. Instead of the gods are thinking for me or through me, now the human being begins to feel I am thinking. I am thinking. And we see, particularly in Greece, the beginnings of logical thinking, the beginnings of philosophical thinking. We see similar developments, not quite the same but similar kinds of developments in China um, with Confucius and in India with the Indian philosophers uh, culminating with the Buddha, for example. And the tremendous Buddhist logic and Buddhist philosophy in the Abhidhamma, which developed in the centuries after the Buddha. So this is a time of the development of thought. What is true, what is untrue. What is the truth or the untruth about, for example, the great questions such as birth and death? 
And we find that in this, this period in particular, um, great arguments went on. As people lost the capacity to have real spiritual vision, and in its place, they gained the capacity to be able to think for themselves intellectually. It was a new, a new gift for human beings, a new capacity. But that also meant that human beings, because they were thinking for themselves, they started to fall into error in various ways. They started to fall into dispute. And this is the time, of course, when we see in the Western world all the disputes develop between the different streams and sects of religion. But we also notice that this was the time when politics and the law developed in Greece and Rome. The kind of politics and law concepts which we still work with today, democracy, monarchy, aristocracy, um, constitution, um, senate, political parties, the People's Party, the Plebeians, the Patricians, all these different um, concepts were developed in this time when people began to think for themselves about social order. Then when we could move on into the fifth age, the age of Pisces, northern Europe, then the question becomes not so much beauty, of course beauty still goes on, not so much truth, of course that goes on too, but now the question becomes what is the good? How can I put my new, newly won capacity to think in the service of the good? You can have an extremely clever 12 or 13 year old boy in his bedroom with his computer, and he can be far more clever with his computer, clever in his head, and his calculations and so on, than perhaps many of us in this group. But he's not using his thinking for in a moral or ethical way, or putting his, his thinking in the service of the good. And that is the point now. We, we have the capacity to think for ourselves. We gained that in the fourth epoch. Now we have to put that in the service of what is good. And especially we have to do that in this period, which as you see has a long way to go yet. We have to do that in the realm of economy. Because it is now economy which is the centre of our age. Not so much religion, not so much politics, but economy. In this age, the age varies, politics and law sought to emancipate themselves from religion. It took a long time. Even in the Middle Ages, with endless struggles going on in the continent between the emperors and the popes, for example. But in our time, we can see how economy is trying to free itself, emancipate itself, both from religion, it hasn't done that yet in places like Iran, or Saudi Arabia, and also from politics. And that's what's happening in the West. Economics, economic life is trying to develop its own being. Now, we can have a big discussion about that, because of course that disturbs many people. But the question is, this will happen. The question is, can it happen in such a way that this economy will be an economy which is dedicated to the good? And not just to me, myself and I. Self-interest. So, the other aspect of our time, 
is individualism. The development of individualism. In the fourth epoch, when people were trying to develop their own thinking and trying to understand what is the truth of matters, they still very strongly felt themselves to be part of the collective. Not the old kind of blood collective so much, which you have in the, in the third epoch, um, but rather the collective of religion, the collective of village, the collective of uh, polis in Greece, city-state. But in our epoch, now we are beginning to free ourselves from those kind of collective thoughts to begin to understand that we are individuals in our own right. And so in our time, you start to get even the concept of global citizen emerging. And people begin to say to them, well, there's just me and there's the world. I relate to the planet. Many young people feel that's what they relate to these days. They're not concerned about their nation or their race or their tribe or their clan. They're just concerned about themselves, maybe their own personal friends, and their own personal friends on the other side of the world who they can talk to in the computer, but the planet. Something perhaps missing in the middle there, you might think. Then we go on into the next epoch, Aquarius, which will be the time of Eastern Europe, the Slavic peoples. And this will become very important when we stop, when we turn later to talk about Europe, uh, sorry, Russia and Ukraine, and the West's relationships with that. And the, what will humanity will work on in that era, or epoch, will be a kind of higher communal feeling, which we cannot really even begin to conceive of quite yet but which the Slavic peoples already have an inkling on, and which they also have a kind of feeling for. Very much wrapped up with the word, Russian word, or Slavic word, near, near, which means a whole bunch of things from world, cosmos, village, community. So, this will be a time of a new social life based on a new heightened feeling quality. Hard for us to grasp that, yes, because we're wrestling with individualism. We're wrestling to free ourselves from the collectivities of the fourth people. Then the last epoch, Capricorn, which is very far in the future, the time of America, the American epoch. That will be a time of a new communal will force, willpower. Again, very difficult for us to perhaps to conceive what that will be like. A new kind of moral will. And a new kind of theocratic rule will develop. Only it won't be a theocratic rule by a new priesthood. It will be a new kind of theocratic rule in the sense that all of us have a new communal will kind of priesthood of all believers, if you know that phrase. This is just an overview of the, of the different cultural ages. We'll see how that relates to the present year and the issues we have to consider that are going on now. So the age of Pisces then, its real aim is to summarize our consciousness in all activities. This is the age of what Steiner called the consciousness soul. 
We try to be super conscious about everything we do. Even every sort of item you buy from the shops, you know, is covered in information, is it not? You spend ages just looking at all of the, the information on the carton of milk or orange juice. Not only all the logos and the, the zappy little cartoons and emojis, but all the little details and all the, 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 the calories and all of this information because we want to be so conscious about what we're doing, you see. And you might think that's a load of nonsense. But the point is, that's what we do, that's what people want in the present time. There's a drive to do that. A drive to be scientifically and objectively conscious. We're striving to become autonomous, spiritually self-aware individuals. Now you might say, yes, but Terry, most people aren't. You know, just look at the first page, you switch on something like YouTube, you go to the front page of YouTube, and what do you see on the front page of YouTube? Endless garbage. Right? Endless trash and triviality. So what's spiritually self-aware about that? But that's because we have to start, as it were, in the lower octave, the lower octave of me, myself, and I. And we have to rise from that egocentric individual who has lost contact with the spirit to develop ourselves as self-aware individuals. And as I said, we have to apply our thinking to the good. We have to integrate gifts which we've developed through natural scientific thinking and training, in particular the concern for accuracy and objectivity in all that we do. Then we have to develop, because we're trying to develop, become individuals, becoming individuals means that necessarily we will have to be antipathetic. We have to say no to the groups, the old groups, of family, church, peer group, and so on, that perhaps in some way wish to hold us back. We have to step out of them. This is the, the, uh, the step which a teenager strives to make. Peer group or me? So this antipathy is involved in this process of becoming an I, an ego, a self. And because of that, our age is particularly focused on antipathy. There's a lot of antipathy. It's inevitable in our age. Therefore, we have to consciously work to develop sympathy and empathy. Now, if you go to certain cultures, for example, uh, I experienced this when I was in Japan, you can see how some of these cultures have this from ancient times. It's an instinct, you see. It's an instinct to consider other people to consider the periphery, not to interrupt other people when they're speaking. Very difficult for Westerners. But they have that from this ancient um, heritage. Our challenge is to develop it individually through our own work on ourselves. So we have to work developing sympathy and, and empathy in social settings. Also in this age of Pisces, <coughs> We are seeing the death of what are called here churchianity. Uh, Christianity, as in the church form, that comes from the fourth epoch and even the third epoch, doesn't belong to the fifth epoch. Church, the whole world of church is beautiful as those buildings are. Glorious works of art, many of them. 
But that is all destined to fail. Church life. But that does not mean that Christianity is destined to fail. Because the whole purpose of Christianity is about death and resurrection. So Christianity itself has to die in the old form of churches and resurrect. And I think that's what it's actually doing in individual human beings. And then we have to develop the true global consciousness. So that we widen our consciousness beyond ourselves, beyond our nations, and take in awareness of the whole world. But this, of course, does not mean globalist consciousness in the sense of atheists <coughs> and global elite trying to control things. Now, working against us in this epoch are the forces of spiritual counterforces working through such things as the New World Order. And they have their own tasks and their own ways in which they're seeking to frustrate our genuine, our justified tasks. And these tasks that they are seeking to achieve are they're seeking to suppress the remaining elements from the fourth epoch. That's probably the fourth fifteenth century. That means the Latin cultures particularly the French culture of Europe and the Spanish culture. They're seeking to finish them off. I'm talking about now, the, when I'm talking about the New World Order, I'm talking about those forces within the New World Order which are driven from particularly the English-speaking world. Because it's the English-speaking world which is in the driving seat in our epoch. They're also seeking to freeze the evolutionary process at the level of our epoch. So that it doesn't go on to the sixth epoch. And it remains at the level of materialism. It remains at the level of the ego, of the self-centered I. And they're seeking to block any cultural combination contribution from the Germanics, Germans, Dutch, Scandinavians, and so on. They wish that the, the overwhelming new ideas and new developments will come only from the English-speaking world. Well, you only have to switch on the BBC and listen to it for a week. And I've been listening to it for 30 years to understand that this is exactly what they do. Hardly any ideas come into the BBC from the continent, except for Radio 3, where they're always playing continental classical music. But all the new ideas about new ideas in science, new ideas in um, uh, business, for example, politics, these they look over the, over the Atlantic to America for. They're seeking to unite the atmosphere and maintain its dominance from the fifth to the sixth epochs. This goes back to the 19th century, we'll talk about that a bit later. And they're seeking to block the embryonic Slavic elements, which are, seeking to, which are trying to prepare the sixth epoch, the future age of Aquarius. They're trying to block that from development. They're trying to make sure that the Slavic elements take their lead only from the Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking cultures. And they're trying to promote supermaterialism, the culture of machine animals. They're seeking to turn us into machine animals, both before and after death. 
so that we continue these thoughts, we take these thoughts, these super materialistic thoughts, across the threshold into the spiritual world with us. And in the fifth cultural age, we're moving, as I said, from the second to the third phase. I'm sure some of you are aware that in esotericism, seven is the number of time, twelve the number of space, and five the number of man, human being. Cultural ages of 2,160 years can be divided into seven phases of 380 years each. So we see that we are the first phase of our epoch, 1413 to 1721. The second phase is from 1721 to 2029. And if you study the history of that period, you'll see it was a period of great dualism and discord. And if you compare it with this period here, in the fourth epoch, 439 to 131. Again, I can't go into that now, I just invite you to look at that. In 439 to 131 BC, and see if you can see similarities in these two periods. I believe it's quite obvious. But we are now in periods that we're approaching in, in uh, seven years' time, the beginning of the third phase of our epoch which will see, in various ways, new threefold impulses developing. This is the phase of Trinity and Balance, which corresponds to the period in the fourth epoch of 131 BC to 177 after Christ. So we're now approaching an imminent phase shift from 2029 onwards. As I mentioned before, the significance of the number 23, 2 and 3, is the struggle between dualism and Trinity, or triadism. And you can see this number if you pay attention everywhere. In Hollywood, in the media, on TV, in the news. Whether it's 23, whether it's 230, whether it's 2 million, 300,000, 0 0.23, 2.3, 2 thirds, etc., etc. If you pay attention, you start to see this everywhere. And then you, may, then you might say, well, Terry, isn't that the case of any number? Well, I can assure you it isn't. I've tried doing that. I've been interested in this number for over 30 years. So I've, worked, I've, looked, I've tried looking for other numbers in the same way. They don't crop up with the regularity of this number. And another very important thing happened in 2020. Um, you may know that uh, Jupiter and Saturn, two great planets of our solar system, which are traditionally associated with the future, Jupiter and the past, Saturn, they meet each other, they have a conjunction every 20 years. And so every 20 years, 20 years here, then 20 years here, then 20 years here, and so you get a triangle, an invisible triangle, rather like that invisible pentagram I mentioned earlier on, Venus. Now we have an, an invisible triangle of the conjunctions of Jupiter and Saturn around the zodiac. And this triangle too rotates around the zodiac in the same way. And we see that as a result, as this rotating pattern goes through the, the four elements, I'm sure those of you familiar with um, astrology will know that the, the signs of the zodiac are associated with the four, four elements. Fire signs, earth signs, air signs, water signs, always in disorder, by the way. So we see that a new impulse begins with the fire sign, 
That new impulse then consolidates in the Earth's side. That same impulse which began here then loosens up when this meeting starts happening in air signs. And then finally, in water signs, it dissolves and fades away. So a new cultural impulse, which is determined by the meetings of Jupiter and Saturn, begins and goes cycles through 800 years. And then, here are some of the dates where this happened. But the one that's of interest to us is 1603. A new impulse came in the year 1603. That impulse consolidated in the 1840s, Earth, Earth signs, they began to meet in Earth signs. And then in 2020, just 22 years ago, they began to meet in air signs. And then eventually they'll meet 200 years or so, they'll start meeting water signs. Then that whole impulse will break down. Now you can ask yourself, what was this impulse that began in 1603? What was that impulse? We can, we can talk about that later on. I haven't thought about that. Because that impulse which began in 1603 and consolidated, became very firm in the 1840s, and has been since the 1840s, is now loosening up. It's not exactly breaking down, but it's loosening up. New possibilities are arriving. Now we want to pass on now to the zodiacal level, to the planetary level, to the archangels. But before we do, you can see here, and again I'm sure some of you are familiar with this, that there are actually, in the traditional picture of the spiritual world, as presented for example in the book De Celesti Hierarchia, by you know, Pseudo-Dionysus the Areopagites in the late 5th to early 6th centuries after Christ, we see that there are nine levels of consciousness above ours. Nine. And the three lowest of them are the angels, the archangels, and the archive, also known as the principalities. And above them, another three, Exusiae, or Elohim, Dinamis, Periotitis, also known by these abstract classical terms, powers, virtues, and minions. These are Latin terms, these are Greek terms. And then we have, above them, Ophanim, Cherubim, Seraphim, Ophanim also known as thrones. And here you see the characteristics of these nine. Now, for our point purpose tonight, the important thing here is with the angels. Whereas the angels are concerned with us as individuals, and each one of us has a guardian angel. The archangels are concerned with guarding looking after communities whether these are tribes, nations, peoples, or any other kind of community. Now this, these ideas about the archangels were developed by Abbot Johannes Tertanius of Sponheim in Germany in this period here, the 15th, late 15th century, who wrote this remarkable book on the seven secondary causes that is, intelligence or spirits who move the spheres according to God, which he presented to the Emperor Maximilian, Habsburg Emperor. A very wise man. And I'm not going to go through all of this, it's just to show you that in his book, he very rigidly, it has to be said, 
He very recently <coughs> gives dates for these archangels because there are particular archangels, you see, who have almost as if they are senior archangels. So they have a special task, and that task is to overlook for a smaller period of time, not 2,160 years, but according to Denius, 354 years and four months, to be specific. A particular period of time. And in that particular period of time, they work with other archangels to bring forward particular peoples or particular folks to play specific roles in history during those times. So here we see the Michael, the archangel of the sun, Riphiel, Saturn, and so on. The important one again for us is the most recent one. We came out of the age of Gabriel, the moon archangel, in 1879. And you see that date is the same. We were used slightly different dates, which are a little bit more vague than Chetinius's, which are very rigid, very fixed. But you see that the 1879 is the same date. And this is the key one. So since the time of 1879, we've been in the age of Michael. <coughs> what is that? I'll come back to Mars in a minute. The age of Michael, which we're living in now, and which will continue until 2250 or 2300. Michael and Gabriel traditionally all stand at the, the, the gates of birth and death. Gabriel at birth, Michael at death. And whereas Gabriel's task is to bring us into this material world, out of the spirit, Michael's task is to take us out of this spirit, out of the physical world, into the spirit. So Michael is always related to the spirit, the world of spirit, and particularly to the sun within the world, world of spirit. So Michael is always concerned with expanding our consciousness, with the spiritualization of thinking, with idealism, we're thinking the good, with spiritual philosophy, independence of thought, confronting evil, transparency, cosmopolitanism, not nationalism. Nationalism is more an impulsive Gabriella time, where you identify with a particular birth, a piece of the earth, so to speak, section of realm or region of the earth, and the people who live there, and the language they speak. My girl, that's not his concern or her concern, or its concern, because these are archangels, so gender is, is a nonsense. But we have to use one of them um, in earth languages. So you see that Michael is shown here weighing the souls, it's a medieval picture, after death, and here Michael is shown over the Coventry Cathedral confronting the spirit of evil. But in this age of Michael, there are shadows shadows of the Michaelic uh, impulses. And those are, for example, computer languages. Michael wishes to go beyond thinking in words and concepts. And instead we develop computer languages. Michael wishes, to, wishes us to understand idealistic thinking and acting together with other human beings. But they the, the, uh, the counterforces have developed the internet. 
as a kind of mockery of that. Wonderful though it is in many, many respects. But it's dependent on earthbound technology. We talk about the cloud, but we all know that there is no cloud. It's just a mass of tubes in boxes, usually underground, enormous warehouses and so on. My goes concerned with cosmopolitanism, so we get imperialism developing in the Mycaric age as the shadow of that. Mycaric is concerned with individualism, so we get new oligarchies, we get Elon Musk's, we get new super-rich plutocrats emerging, and the oligarchies of the WEF getting together and deciding our fate for us. Mycaric is concerned with the sun, so we get People who are gold bugs, people who are concerned with physical gold, there are many people in America are simply obsessed in the present time with as massive as much gold as they, as they can. And of course, the main challenge within the Micah of time is the incarnation of So this brings me now to these three themes Lucifer, Christ, and Arnold. This very simple diagram shows, in a sense, in this U-form, simply what has happened for us and the whole of our humanity in the physical earth, or the whole of the earth, I should say, condensing out of spirit, which I call supra-nature, not super-nature, supra-nature, above, beyond nature, condensing into nature, into physicality, and then dissolving again and returning to spirit, but different from what we were. However, you see that here, when we get to this point of densest matter, we can also slip down into sub-nature. And that is the challenge where we are now, in our present time, in the 20th and 21st century, particularly through the forces of electromagnetism and uh, nuclear energy. We can slip down into, uh, into the, the realm below the organic realms of nature. And this is the great temptation, as we shall see. In occultism, it's called the eighth sphere, because these are the seven conditions which the, which the planet Earth and we ourselves have condensed down to. Here's our physical middle Earth. And then the three spiritual forms, conditions which lie in our future, if we make the right decisions. But if we don't, we will be drawn by the spiritual counterforces into their realm of the eighth sphere. Now, there's a particular time period in this descent of ours. A period which lasts about 5,000 years at the bottom of this curve, you can say. And at the bottom of this curve, that was the place where Christ incarnated in Jesus of Nazareth. And you had the, what's, what Steiner called the mystery of Golgotha took place, where Christ was crucified, which of course is the place of the skull, the meaning of it. This is the, the, dark, the darkest period. Out of the spirit, down into the earth of reality, 
and then slowly back towards the spirit again. But during this 5,000 years, in this period of descent, and particularly this 5,000 year period here, we actually found our freedom and our individuality. So, in that sense, of course, not all dark at all. We are, as it were, let go by our parents. And we find our way by ourselves. Although, of course, also with their help from the spiritual world, human beings continually incarnating, who help us, the great sages and saints, are also continually incarnating out of spirit to help us, even in this year, 5,000 years ago. And so this dark age of discord, particularly the 5,000 years, that's where materialism grew strongest. But in 1900, the doors of perception began to reopen. Those doors of perception, what do I mean by that? I mean that, imagine a time when the child is born, the child can see the whole spiritual world around her. It's all there. Not only the world of the fairies, but the whole world of the spiritual beings. Our ancestors had something like that in ancient times. And very gradually, as the planet and we condensed into matter, we lost this capacity. These doors closed. And they, they really closed for all but a very, very, very few who we call wizards or witches, wise old men or women, who still have an inkling of that. But as we descended even into this dark period, people began to become afraid even of them. But in, two, in 1900, those doors began to reopen. And from that time, when people are born since that time, we find that people are beginning to have glimpses, <coughs> intimations, natural, natural clairvoyance is returning, simply by virtue of being born as a human being. Of course, we all know that many children have certain experiences like this. And that was perhaps always the case. But children lose those experiences by and by. But from now on, it will grow stronger and stronger. And that's another reason why, by the way, Araman, when he incarnates, has to make his move soon, when materialism is still very strong. So Steiner described how history is framed, so to speak, by three great incarnations of these three spiritual beings. The being of Lucifer incarnated in China 3,000 years ago, the being we call Lucifer. And we can ask, well, who was this being in China? Steiner says a few things about him, but not very much. I put a name there, I'll draw attention to it in a minute. But this being incarnated in China brought tremendous gifts to Chinese culture at that time. And then Christ incarnated in Jesus of Nazareth in Palestine 2,000 years ago at the River Jordan near the baptism. And then, round about now, he said, Aaron will incarnate in the West. And he didn't specifically point to the USA. But he dropped certain hints. 
if you read, you can read what he wrote about that in his book here, uh, Lucifer and Aaron, a series of lectures he gave in 1919 about these three incarnations. Then we see these two beings. Before Christ, Lucifer was our main opponent, so to speak, the one that worked against us. <coughs> because Lucifer is the spirit of self-centered light, pride, and arrogance. And he wishes to he wishes us not to descend into earth. Not to descend into material reality, but to remain above in his beautiful realm. Whereas after Christ, our main challenge comes from Adam, who says there is no spiritual world. Lucifer never says there is no spiritual world. The Luciferic beings always wish to draw you into the spiritual world, but only into their beautiful spiritual world. Their world, which is not connected in a sense to the rest of the spiritual world. Aaron, however, denies the spiritual world, even though he's a spiritual being himself. That's his task to fool us into thinking there is no spiritual world. And to, to connect only to the world of five sense reality the spirit of untruth, deception, and materialism. Steinig produced this enormous statue during the First World War with the English sculptress Edith Marion. Uh, that's how high a human being is, it's about nine meters high. And then you see uh, uh, the representative of humanity, and here you see the Lucifer being is falling, and here you see the Aramonic being is kept in his place on the ground, as it were, amongst the, the roots and down there amongst the minerals, as it were. It's simply a symbolic picture of the association of Aramon with, with matter and Lucifer up in the clouds falling. But here, that you see them actually connected and wrestling with each other. And here, I would submit that this is where they are wrestling within our souls. So they're wrestling in the macrocosm, so to speak, in the world of nature. And they're also wrestling within our souls. Up here, by the way, who's that up there? That's the spirit of cosmic humor. Having a good laugh at the whole person. This is the face of the representative of humanity. This is the face of Lucifer. And this is the face of Aaron. There's Lucifer. This one here. And one possibility, I'm only, I put this out as my own supposition. I'm not, I can't stand behind this and say, I really feel this is definitely the case, but it's definitely a possibility that the Lucifer being, the incarnation, may, have, may be the being that we call, uh, mentioned in China as the Yellow Emperor, Huan Di, um, the common ancestor of the Chinese people, and he invented all these things here. Early third millennium. And still, in, in, particularly in Taiwan today, you see they greatly honor him, you know, the president of uh, the leader of Taiwan, which paying respects to Huang Li, the shared ancestor of the Chinese people. The Chinese specific comment about the incarnation of Aramon was that just as there was an incarnation of Lucifer in the flesh, and as 
there was an incarnation of Christ in the flesh. So even before a part of the third millennium has run its course, there will be the real incarnation of Aram in the West in the flesh. So as a human being, this spiritual force will appear as a human being for a certain number of years amongst us. And before that happens, Stanley pointed out that all these things will have to have happened. One, the spread of the mechanistic view of the universe. Two, the social life has to be driven by economics. Three, the spread of nationalism. Four, the spread of party politics. Five, a literalist, Bible fundamentalist Christianity. Only the letter of the text of the Bible. Six, intellectualization of life based on statistics. Seven, the unconscious attitude to food and drink. The unconscious taking in of the spirit through food and drink. You think of fast food or junk food, for example. And lastly, there will be tremendous acceleration of inventiveness in physical life in science and technology. Of course, all these things have already happened since 1919. Now, my own thoughts about the incarnation of this being, uh, I've written on my website here uh, in this article, The Incarnation of Iron, When and Where. So my website is, is www.freeman.org. And there's the actual, that's the website and that's the site for the um, article. If you want to see that, I can show you again later on. So, I can't make the presentation tonight, I will take a whole other lecture about why Aram is coming, is, is amongst us now. But if we're to understand what's going on at the present time, I think it's absolutely essential. If Aram was born in 2000, of course he would be now 22. So assuming birth in May 2000, as I do, and I can show in my article why I think it occurred in May, it has to do with the astronomical and astrological events that happened in August of the year before, 1999, and then the events which happened 270 days later in May of uh, 2000. Um, then we see, oh, sorry, then we see that um, in the first year he would be learning to stand and walk. Then by 2002 that being would be learning to speak, 2003 learning to think and say I to itself. In 2007, approximately, we've been changing teeth. In 2014, would be the puberty experience. 2019, November, would be the first moon node. May 2021, would be adulthood. And November 2029, would be Saturn return. And again, I can only invite you to just think about what has happened in the past 20 years in relation to these periods of time. When we look at the last 21 years from this perspective, such events as 9-11, Afghanistan, Iraq, UK, Animal Holocaust, 2001, Surveillance State, Global Warming, Paranoia, etc, etc, COVID, of course. Um, here's, I think, a very significant quote from Steiner. In the, this comes from this book I mentioned. As soon as our money incarnates at the destined time in the West, the whole of culture will be impregnated with its forces. What else will come 
his train. Through certain stupendous acts, he would bring to humanity all the clairvoyant knowledge which until then could be acquired only by dint of intense labor and effort. People could live on as materialists, they could eat and drink, as much as may be left after the war, and there would be no need for any spiritual efforts. The Aramanic streams would continue their unimpeded course. When Araman incarnates in the West at the appointed time, he would establish a great occult school for the practice of magical arts of the greatest grandeur, and what otherwise can be poured, acquired, sorry, and what otherwise can be acquired only by strenuous efforts will be poured over mankind. Does that remind you of anything? Do you see anything like that happening in the world today? I think we do. I think we can see that this is beginning to happen through all the kinds of ways in which they are trying in aromatic ways to connect our being to machines. Our being, our machines to our thought life, for example. All the phenomena such as second life and virtual reality, all these things. When you listen to um, this guy, Yuval Noah Harari, and I hope you've all been listening to him. Yeah. The thinker, philosopher of the World Economic Forum. When you listen to him, then it's almost as if you're hearing some of these things that Stein was talking about that Araman is going to bring about. And we know that uh, Karl Schwab has said that the pandemic represents a rare but narrow opportunity, window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. And for Schwab, it's actually about changing us. It's not about changing the world. It's about changing who we are as human beings. And for Harari, it's about doing away with us as human beings. Doing away with us. So we become a different kind of being altogether. No longer an organic, biological being. Um, again, I'm sure you're familiar with this. Something from the great, from the great reset, which is all these ideas are set forth in Schwab's book, and we have to notice things like the, this is the diagram, the nested diagrams on the, on the WEF um, Great Reset project in uh, 2020, and we have all these incredible, unbelievable. Have you looked into that? Yeah. And you go deeper and deeper and deeper, and you see that they have thought of everything. And you click on any one of these things, and it goes into more and more and more. Yeah? What you don't find there is very much about spirituality. But it's as if everything else is within this system. And by the way, you notice the inverted hexagon. You see inverted pentagons, inverted pentagrams in this um, system. The very reset will lead to a fusion of our physical, digital, and biological identities. And when royals and socialists and globalists all share the same gender, say some people, it's time to become concerned. And here we see, we see almost the, the Luciferian Aramanian contrast there. All in red, all in blue. The great reset, all in blue. The great 
a reawakening or a red. Well, I don't wish to knock these people. They're doing what they can. This is Mr. Zelenko, he's General Flynn. They're doing what they can to try to reawaken people, as they say. But often they're doing it in very traditional ways, like, for example, the, um, uh, based on certain literalist readings of the Bible. And here's somebody who, again, is a, a person who, um, as it were, was almost uh, presenting the ideas of Ireland ahead of time. Zbigniew so Rzynski, uh, the former American National Security Advisor, said in uh, his book, in Grand Chessboard, 1997, he spoke of a new web of global linkages is growing exponentially outside the more traditional nation-state system. That web, woven by multinational corporations, NGOs, and scientific communities who are reinforced by the internet, already creates an informal system that is inherently congenial to more institutionalized and inclusive global cooperation. In the course of the next several decades, a functioning structure of global cooperation based on geopolitical realities could thus emerge and gradually assume the mantle of the world's current regions, he means the USA which has for the time being assumed the burden of responsibility for world stability and peace in the USA. Geostrategic success in that cause would represent a fitting legacy of America's role as the first, only, and last truly global superpower. You see, these people are thinking beyond the nation-state, of course. So Brzezinski's concern is not for America at all. His concern is for the new paramount global state of the future. And he's dead now, he died a couple of years ago, in 2017. But his torch is being carried on in various ways by Mr. Schwab and Mr. Harari. And then, but of course, it's not just him. You have to look at the various people and the sponsors who are the trustees, or the board of trustees of the WEF, and see who they are. People like Larry Fink of BlackRock, for example. So the fourth industrial revolution will affect the very essence of our human experience, says Mr. Schwab. However, on the other side of things, we have people who wish to not look at that and instead go back into the past, the ancient past, not into this super high-tech Aramanic future, but back into the ancient past. So this is a German Scandinavian rock band called Heilung, which you can see here. And they try to reimagine the music of uh, in the northern Europe around about 200-300 AD. Uh, quite a phenomenon, you can see them on YouTube. And very, become very popular very rapidly. Just a, a symbol of where many people want to go. Another symbol. Another symptom of where many people want to go. You want to find your tribe. Yeah? This yearning for tribal consciousness. This yearning to overcome what is seen as selfish individualism, but it's put in terms of the ancients. It's reconnecting with the ancients, reconnecting with the ancestors, reconnecting with the ancient tribes. This is one of the ways in which many people in the New Age movement react, react against the kind of thing 
that Joao uh, Marari are trying to bring into the world. But this polarity we see very strongly, we've seen it for 20 years now, in the world entertainment and media, in, of course, what's represented in Matrix and what's represented in The Lord of the Rings. Two very different movies, but they are basically speaking about the same thing. What is that one same thing? It is that a tremendous force is coming towards humanity. A tremendous force. A force which is seeking to control all of us. And that force is represented, of course, in different ways. Machine-animal force here. And here it's represented by the occultic power of Sauron. In a kind of dark ages, early Middle Ages context. From Tolkien. But it's the same thing. And these two trilogies, both trilogies, notice, these two trilogies both appear as we pass from the second millennium to the third millennium, around the time of the millennium. Here we see CERN. Of course, you can't see that great CERN from, from space, but that's how big it is. So the CERN Research Center, part of the Physics Research Center in Switzerland, and there it is underground. Then there's the other ring. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all and in the darkness to find them. And we are encouraged by the media to put our faith in this ring, in this approach to reality. And in world geopolitics, we see that we are faced in this 21st century by these two. The world of the ancient incarnation of Lucifer, the world being of the coming present incarnation, I would submit, of Aaron. And I deliberately put Europe very squashed here, because I think that's where it is, squashed between these two. This is what we have to face in the 21st century. These two facing off each other as Aaron comes into incarnation. Because these two, like Hitler and Stalin, sometimes usually work against each other, but sometimes they collaborate. As they've done in COVID, for example. So we have to steer our way by the distance between Scylla, I'm sorry, Scylla and Charybdis, the whirlpool. The whirlpool will destroy the whole ship. Scylla, the monster, just, just ate up a few of the the group, so Odysseus steered clear closer to Scylla. But through this way, they got through the Straits of Messina, Scylla and Eurydice. We have to steer our way. Humanity has to steer its way between America and China. Um, I'm not going to quote all of this from you, well, no, if you don't know him, I'll just again say, please go and um, see what he says. He's talking about hacking human beings. He's talking about there is no free will anymore. There is no uh, spirit. There is no soul. Science is not about truth. It's about power. The most important place in religion today is Silicon Valley. That's where the new religions are being created now by people like Ray Kurzweil. He says. I hope you're familiar with Ray Kurzweil and he's bought the age of spiritual machines. These are the religions that will take over the world, says fellow um, 
dual citizen. Harari. No, you, uh, you, uh, you have no, no Harari. But behind all of this is the incarnation irony and the inspiration of materialism. It's a difficult and dangerous state we have to pass through. Just as human individuals have to pass through adolescence and get into the 20s through the gates of 21. So in the year 869, Schleiner pointed out how the, the spirit was abolished by the church. And that might seem a strange thing to say, and it's rather complicated to go into, but I don't have an article about that on my website. But the point is that in, in that year, in 869, the Council of the Church in Constantinople, in that very church of the Holy Spirit, Hagia Sophia, a council took place which effectively said that the human being has only one rational and intellectual soul, by which they meant you have an intellectual and rational soul, you do not have a higher soul, which is actually that part of your being which can take you, guide you to the spirit. It was a teaching of the twin souls, of the two souls, the lower soul which pays attention to the body, and the higher soul which pays attention to the spirit. And the council insisted to various sly, devious things that were done at that council, that the spiritual soul was left out. That's the pneumaticus anthropos, spirit man, of which St. Paul talks in the New Testament, and which Aristotle spoke about. That was done away with. And that had tremendous consequences in the following <coughs> centuries, um, both amongst Catholic and the Protestant theologians. Even after the Reformation, the Protestants did not realize the consequences of that abolition of the spirit. And that's why, even today, in advertising, for example, people say a lot about body and soul, body and soul, body and soul, and not body, soul, and spirit. Sometimes people talk about body, mind, and soul. But spirit is something else. And that's where, you started pointing out, that's the original, that's where that was first done away with. Back in 869. The soul was abolished by Marxist philosophy and by behaviorist psychology in the 19th and 20th centuries. They decided we don't have a soul either. Everything is done by the physical brain. And now, as I said, we're at the point of abolishing the body, which will be a human sweet genocide. Anthropocide, if you will. So our physical vehicle will now be something else than organic. It will be perhaps ceramic or it will be mineral. The whole idea that humans have this soul or spiritual people that's over since around. The new religions from Silicon Valley and Bangalore are likely to give people visions based on technology, eternal life here on Earth. This is what we face with today, folks. The end of humanity as we know it. We've got to look this in the face and understand what this is. It is a spiritual power, a spiritual force. And it's what's coming in the cloak, as it were, as it, as it were in the atmosphere of the incarnation of Aaron. That has to happen. And Aaron is giving us all these technical gifts 
like it's going on and using right now, with all these technical gifts which he's giving us. And along with all these technical gifts come the ideas of people like this and this and this. And these two. Okay, it's a must. Yeah? And it's these ideas which are actually more dangerous. Because they have an impact on what we are and how we understand ourselves as human beings. If we, in, if we take in these ideas, if we begin to act according to them, then we will cease to be human beings. And we have to look this in the face. And this is the point of the age of Michael. That's what the age of Michael is about. That's what Michael Archangel wants us to do. To look this in the face, not to run away from it. But to look it in the face to try and understand it. See what and who is behind it. Um, right. I must come to an end. I will say something a little bit more hopeful at the end. In 1910, Sweden shyly began to talk about the coming reappearance of Christ in the etheric world, the realm of the angels. And because of this return of natural clairvoyance I mentioned earlier, in the, at the end of that 5,000 years of darkness, then people would, from the year 1933, look at that number, begin to perceive the etheric Christ in the form of an angel, Christ born by an angel, just as he was born by a human being 2,000 years ago. And what, did, what then came from the side of Aram in 1933? Well, we all know what came out. What came then was the whole of the war. What came then was Hitler. What came then was what Stalin did uh, to the people of Russia and to the people of Ukraine. But Stalin pointed out that people would begin to have sight of the Christ from 1933 onwards. Such vision was experienced even during World War II, and even in terrible conditions people perceive the Christ in the etheric world. And you can read about this, for example, in the book They Experience Christ, Reports for an Investigation by the Institute for Religion and Sociology, published in Stockholm in 1980. And since the end of the war, awareness of the biosphere and the angelic etheric realm has steadily grown, as we all know. And the environmental movement, the ecology movement, people encountering angels, all of this is part of this new awareness of the etheric realm. That realm, lowest realm of the spiritual world, just beyond that physical realm. So you have people like Lorna Byrne talking about angels, and other, many other people having personal encounters. This is growing and growing, um, as well as all this, these technological developments. And in the fourth millennium, so after our epoch, at that time, Christ will then be born by an archangel, not an angel. 2,000 years ago, he was born by a human being. Now, he's born by an angel in the etheric world. And in the future, he'll be born by an archangel in the astral world. And another aspect of this Christ event is that this new rhythm I mentioned, which Stein began to speak about on, in December 1917, Interestingly enough, on the 23rd of December, a new rhythm in human history. So this is not based on the traditional astrological rhythms, as I mentioned earlier on. This is a rhythm which is related directly to the 33 and the third years of Christ on Earth. 
And that is that all social events, good or bad, experience a kind of resurrection, a kind of reappearance in some form or other, 33, 66, and 99 years later. And of course, we can only convince ourselves of this um, by studying history and current events. So those of you who are interested in education will know that the child develops through three seven-year phases, um, develops different soul faculties in these three, three seven-year phases, from seven to 14 to 21, and those are marked by physical developments, which become more subtle as we grow up. But if you look at the centuries from this point of view, three times 33 and a third years is a century, of course, if you look at the centuries from this point of view, and I can only again recommend you to look at the 7th century events, the 14th century events, and now the 21st century events from this point of view, and see how they reflect um, developments that happen in the life of the individual. And then we can look back at these years I mentioned earlier, 1989, 1956, 1923, and look at the events which happened. Because there's a certain resonance that's going on between what's happening now and what happened at those times, which we all lived through. Well, except for the ones in 1923. Most of us in this room lived through all these things. We can remember some of them. And finally, um, on the dark side, so to speak, is this question of the 666 being. 666, 1332, 1998. And this is this being mentioned in, in the book of Revelation, 666, which is a, a being which is not Arman. This being, unlike Arman, Lucifer, never incarnates on as physically on Earth, but always strikes into human history in these 666 years, periods, after Christ. And the first of these events was in, in what is now Iran, in the Academy of Gondishapur, which existed from this period, 530 to 850, which is like a kind of intellectual hothouse at that time. Um, and the goal here was by bringing together all the accumulated wisdom in such a way that humanity would have been prematurely drenched with this wisdom ahead of time, so to speak. And that would have had tremendous negative consequences. We weren't supposed to advance at that speed. The 660, uh, by the way, at the center of the Academy of Gondishapur was the School of Medicine. Was particularly famous for medicine. And then 1332, the event that Steiner mentioned in relation to the second attack by this being Sora, the counterintelligence of the sun, so this is a counter sun being, S U N, is the destruction of the Knights Templar by Philip IV, the king's, king of France, who was not only obsessed with gold, but also wished to um, uh, destroy the Templars because they refused to accept his, his um, desire for him to lead a new order, 
Templars and Hospitalers to be um, merged into one holy which he would lead. They refused to accept that. And he was also hard up for gold. He'd already persecuted the Jews to get their money, and now he wanted to persecute the Templars to get their money, because I'm sure you know they were some of the first international bankers. So, however, I noticed that in 1332, that wasn't actually the time when the Templars were destroyed. The Templars were destroyed between 1307 and 1314 in France. Some of them survived in other European countries after that, but the destruction was between 1307 and, and um, 1314. So why does Sean talk about 1332? Because it's connected with 666. He also talks about the previous life of um, uh, Philip IV, which is particularly dark. But the other thing about Philip IV, which we should know, is that he was the first really modern European king to develop a modern state system with royal bureaucrats. Um, so very we see a new impulse there, a strong centralized government concept. And then finally, in 1998, around that time, we see the strong anti-globalization movement about the debt redemption or debt forgiveness at that time. And then a couple of years later we see 9-11, which of course is an incredible um, counterforce attack in itself. You can see all the counterforces at work in that event. Lucifer, Aaron, and, uh, and Sora. But I think it's particularly interesting, these by the way are traditional sigils or glyphs associated in esotericism with sorrow, the two horns of the beast. So, what I noticed from this here is that there's actually a kind of a window. It's not only in one year that this happens, but there's a window from 1307, 1332, 1357, so 25 years either side of 1332. 1307, 1357. And if you then map that window on either side of 666, and either side of 1998, then, for example, in this period, you'll come to 1973 and 2023. So it's not only one year that Sorrow is active. That's the kind of the uh, center point of the window of activity where he's striking into human affairs. But the period is from 1973 to 2023, next year. And again, we've all lived through this period, so we all know what happened during that time. One very important thing that I would draw your attention to that happened during that time was in 1973, David Rockefeller went to China. And who did he meet in China? He met um, number two in China, um, Zhou Enlai. He didn't meet Mao Zedong, he met Zhou Enlai. And Zhou Enlai was the political mentor of Deng Xiaoping. And Deng Xiaoping, of course, was the man who then, in 1978, opened China up to world capitalism. So China's enter, entrance into the world economy really stems from what Deng Xiaoping did, who was influenced by um, his mentor, Zhou Enlai, who always had a kind of a very interesting figure, always had a kind of leaning 
towards the west. And it was him that David Rockefeller met, the mentor of Gamjaldin. And it's because these Western elitists wanted to bring China into the world economy. They wanted to involve China in conflicts with America that we see what's going on at the moment. Just a couple of slides about um, uh, sorry, the three three periods. The three uh, three years of the windows. So that's a summary of what we have um, where we are in the, uh, the year currently. And um, I realize I haven't got even anywhere near into Russia and Ukraine. And I can sort of sum that up very quickly by saying that I think we can understand the struggle between Russia and Ukraine. Exoterically, it's quite easy to understand. Exoterically, it is the British had a fear of losing India. Russia was the, after France. France was defeated in Napoleon in 1815. After that, the next power that was identified that could, that could take India from us was, was Russia. So the British elite began to focus on Russia. Negative propaganda stepped up on Russia throughout the 19th century. The great game then began. It was a fear and paranoia on the part of Britain because we were addicted as a culture to India in many respects, psychologically addicted, physically addicted. And so we addicted the Chinese to opium from the, the opium which was grown in British India in the raw. Um, but it was fear. It was fear of losing fear of losing um, India which turned us against Russia. Then in the 20th century, the second fear was a fear that um, Russia and Germany would get together. But not only Germany, Russia and any other very intelligent, disciplined, energetic culture, like Japan, for example. So the British set up, the Americans funded the Russia-Japanese war to turn Russia and Japan against each other. So the British did a, a diplomatic revolution and became friends with the Russians for seven years, from 1907. So we could involve the Russians in a war with Germany and turn Russia and Germany against each other. This was laid forth by Halford McKinder, the founder of British geopolitics in 1904. It was vital for the British Empire that Germany and Russia should be kept apart. Brzezinski followed on those ideas from Halford McKinder. And you can see those ideas also followed on by um, the um, uh, geopolitician, geostrategist George Friedman in a YouTube lecture he gives in um, uh, 2015, where he, he's asked, what is the primordial danger or threat for the United States? And he says in his lecture there, you can still see this on YouTube, it's called Europe Destined for Conflict, question mark. February the 4th, 2015. And he's asked, what is the primal, what is the real threat, the existential threat to the United States? Is it ISIS? And he says, no, it's not ISIS. The primordial threat to the United States has always been uh, a combination of Germany and Russia. And for that, to prevent that, we have fought two world wars and the Cold War. 
And no other British or American politician ever has said anything like that. But that's a real key to understand what the 20th century was about. To keep Germany and Russia at odds and never to let them come together. And we've seen in recent years the whole question of the North Stream 2 is about the same thing. And the, um, the drive of, of Halford McKinder to say that uh, world power is based on who controls Central Asia and who controls the, the resources of Central Asia and Siberia. And it is vital that the Anglo-Americans somehow gain those resources from Russia. And this is the long-term goal in the physical sense in the uh, 20th century and the 21st century still today. So the goal is eventually to break Russia up. So eventually to turn Russia and China against each other. That will happen later on, a little bit later on in this century. And then pick them off one by one so that Russia can be, will lose everything east of the Urals and then European Russia can be drawn into a transatlantic world. That's the long-term strategy. Uh, I presented all of this, but I'm afraid I ran out of time. Um, and you can read about it in various things that I've written in UU magazine, for example. But the es es esoteric um, problem, or the, or the esoteric reason for the Russia-Ukraine struggle is part of the ongoing touched on a little bit earlier on, which is to make sure that the Slavic peoples do not do what they're supposed to do in the 60s. To freeze the 50 pot where it is now, under the control and at the lower self-centered ego level of where our Anglo-Saxon in the Anglo-American culture is at the moment. It doesn't mean to say it will be on into the future, but where it is now so that we do not get beyond this egotistical phase and start to develop uh, true spiritual self-autonomy, self-awareness and the beginnings, just the beginnings of a spiritual community. So we have to push the Slavs away so that the Slavs will be pushed towards China which will then turn upon them later on. And they will either destroy each other Certainly, China will try to will, will seek to take what Russia has in Siberia, and then the West will move against China. This is the this is the um, strategy which you can see laid out in many of the American uh, geopolitical think tanks and in various uh, forms. And unfortunately, Ukraine is being used as the battling ram. That might seem strange because you might well surely Russia is invading Ukraine, isn't it? But actually, no. What's really going on here is that Ukraine is being used as the battering ram against Russia. And that what will result from this war will be, will, will be in the intention of the Western powers, the weakening of Russia, the downfall of Russia. And uh, Halford McKinder in 1919, this part of Anglo Saxon geopolitics, he produced a very pithy three-line epithet, which was, um, he, who, uh, he who commands Eastern Europe, sorry, he who rules Eastern Europe commands the heartland. 
by Hotland, he meant Central Asia, Siberia. He who rules the heartland commands the world island. By the world island, he meant Eurasia as a whole. And he who rules Eurasia commands the whole world. This is a key to understanding Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-American geopolitics, which is actually playing out in front of us today. And Ukraine is being used as the unfortunate um, instrument of this new strategy. So I think I'll stop there. Um, I don't know whether we've got any time at all. You've got two minutes. For two minutes. minutes. <laughs> um, does anybody want to head, uh, put forward a question? Two minutes. Let's see what I can manage. Thank you. 